it bad? Was it good? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, I'm Charles Kirsch, and welcome to the first episode of my new theater podcast, Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I'm honored to be joined by our guest, Harold Holzer. Holzer has worked on the 42nd Street Redevelopment Project, worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Channel 13, and has done theater performances related to Abraham Lincoln with such stars as Richard Dreyfus, Norm Lewis, Stephen Lang, Alec Baldwin, Sam Waterston, John Douglas Thompson, and more. He received a medal from President George W. Bush in 2008, alongside such luminaries as Olivia de Havilland and the Sherman Brothers. Hello, Harold. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here, Charles. Congratulations on your new podcast. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. What was the first show you ever saw? I think the first Broadway show I ever saw was um, I Can Get It For You Wholesale um, in 1962 or three. Um, and that's a show that had Barbara Streisand in a supporting part, but um, her famous comic solo was amazing. I remember sitting in the, the topmost balcony to, although I don't remember the theater and um, it was pretty exciting. And I'll ask you about your first show. Was your first show when you discovered that you love theater or was it more of a situation where it was, I love theater, now finally I get to see a Broadway show? You know, I think it was okay, now I love the theater because, um, you know, they didn't show Tony Awards on TV in those days. This is the early, early 60s. And um, there was really no way of knowing about it unless you knew people who loved the theater. And my mother was always a big theater goer from the late 1920s on. She saw live theater, Yiddish theater, uh, concerts, every Ethel Merman show. So we had her old playbills. And, uh, but other than that, I had no connection to it until my friend suggested that we go. Well, now we can see where you got your love of theater from. Right. What, what records did your family own at home? Oh, um, when we got our first hi-fi, we got a Frank Sinatra album, a Lena Horne album, and a Latin dancing album. Those were the first three. But um, uh, my mother in, had a collection that her brothers had owned of famous vaudeville performers. So we had a, an old 78 record player down in the basement, which was like a gigantic piece of furniture. So we would go downstairs and play Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor and um, Van and Skank, who were a very popular harmony duo. Um, and then when I started, when I got my own system and bought my own records, I bought a lot of Sinatra and um, Peggy Lee and more Lena Horne. But I also got uh, my first Broadway show albums like Funny Girl and She Loves Me, which I played over and over again. 
which Cedar album would you say ended up being the most worn out from the number of times you played it? I think She Loves Me, which is odd because I, I barely remembered it when it had its revival, but I played it all the time. I, I was very interested in Abraham Lincoln, and I was interested in the fact that Daniel Massey was in the original, whether or not he was related to Raymond Massey, who played Abraham Lincoln. I'm still not sure if he was or wasn't. I don't, I think not, right? I'm not sure. I well, know he had, a, he had a daughter, Anna Massey, who was an actress. But anyway, Barbara Cook was, was the singer, right? And, and was the star. It was, it was, a, it was a fabulous album. And uh, then I got My Fair Lady. So that, I think My Fair Lady became my absolute, absolute favorite, the Rex Harrison, Julie Andrews version. So now let's move on to your high school. I know that in high school, you got to interview such celebrities as Sammy Davis Jr. and Walter Matthau. What was that like? Well, Walter, both of them were, I was on my high school newspaper. So yes, I got to travel from Queens into Manhattan on the bus and subway. And Walter Matthau was 1963. It was a, um, a press screening of a movie called Charade, uh, which was like a, a Hitchcock-type mystery, mystery comedy. And the stars were Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, but they obviously couldn't get them to come to a high school editor's thing. So Walter Matthau was like the first celebrity um, I'd ever seen. And he was not very, he wasn't known then at all. He had been in a few movies. And I guess he was known by fellow actors as a brilliant actor, but not as a comedian. He was always a villain. And now he was getting to play a comic villain. And he said, and I asked him, um, my question to him was, what is his biggest regret about his career, which I thought was like over, right? But it would go on, of course, for 45 more years. And he said, um, his biggest regret was that nobody knew how to pronounce his name. They said, Matho. Matthew, Matthews, he said, my biggest wish is that someone would know how to spell his name. And then he said that his real name was, and he said something that was 20 syllables long. It was a very long um, middle, not middle European, but um, like a Slavic European name. And um, so that was Walter Matthau. And then we, and then Sammy Davis Jr. held a press conference. Um, by the way, so did Kirk Douglas. I got to see Kirk Douglas when he was doing a play. I think it may have been, is it possible that it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a play? It might have been. I didn't see, I, we didn't get to see the play, but we got to interview him um, with a bunch of editors. And um, I remember he was uh, very big. He was a big, big fellow. But Sammy Davis was uh, really exciting. And he, someone asked him if he considered Martin Luther King to be his leader. And I whispered to my fellow high school student, Edith, whom I would later marry, but we were just in high school then. I whispered because Sammy Davis was a member of the legendary uh, um, Rat Pack or clan in those days. I whispered um, to my future wife, I think Frank Sinatra is his leader. And he heard it and he turned and said, who said that? Who said Frank Sinatra is my leader? He is not my leader. So those are my three high school actor celebrity interviews. Those are great stories. So later in your life when you became an adult and when you went to work for Bella Abzug, 
I know that a lot of her most avid supporters were famous performers. What were your interactions with them like? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because Bella was, um, she was very popular in the theatrical community, especially New York liberal uh, Jewish theatrical community, because she had represented um, a great many actors and directors in the period of the blacklist, uh, when they all had to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee, she was their lawyer. And then when she first ran for Congress, and uh, in 1970, and again in 1972, and then later when she ran for senator and mayor, they all came around to support her. So uh, Jack Guilford was one. Um, he had been blacklisted. Zero Mostel was another. John Randolph was another. Um, and um, um, I think, and Howard De Silva, who was in 1776, all of them, every one of them loyal to, to Bella for life. Lionel Stander. Interestingly, she could not, you know, get any one of them uh, off the hook with the blacklist, but she fought for their right to, to, um, to perform. And, you know, she knew Zero Mostel during the period when he was doing paintings and selling paintings for $5 to stay alive uh, mm -hmm. without losing his apartment. Um, so it was, you know, a very tragic period and she held their loyalty. And then later in her career, she, she of course became almost mm -hmm. like a mother figure to Barbara Streisand five or six years after she became, after Streisand became famous. And in 1972, Streisand did a one-person show um, at Madison Square Garden's Felt Forum in honor of Bella. And people were screaming so much in the aisle and throwing flowers and doing things that upset her. She has stage fright that she did not do a live performance again for like 30 years. She just stopped. I know you have a great story about introducing Bella Abzug and Ethel Merman. Oh, <laughs> yes. So. That's, uh, what year was this? 1969. Um, we, were, we were backstage, uh, again at the Felt Forum, interestingly, for a rally um, uh, for, in, for John Lindsay, who was running for mayor for a second term. And he was also very popular people and show people. So all of the people who were performing were backstage. And I was backstage, um, and Ethel Merman would not leave us alone backstage. She kept, she needed someone to talk to. So she was talking about her entire career for about an hour, which was really interesting. But after an hour, it becomes a little obsessive. And we were trying to, you know, get stories about all the performers. Actually, this is not about Bella. I didn't know Bella yet. There was a man who was backstage who was the ambassador from an African country. I think Nigeria. And he started to talk to me, but Ethel Merman wouldn't stop talking in the other ear. So I was having trouble. So I said, um, ambassador to Nigeria, I'd love you to meet the first lady of the American theater, Ethel Merman. And I took their two hands and put them together and left. So they may be still talking for a while. Going back to your answer to the last question, when you interacted with Barbara Streisand, did you ever get a chance to tell her that you saw her before she was famous in your first show? 
Yeah, I, 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 I think I did. She was not too interested. I mean, um, imagine how many people say that and how many people say they were there like at a great event and they make it up. But yeah, uh, um, I didn't see Funny Girl, which I regret. I only saw I Can Get It For Your Wholesale, which was really an Elliot Gould, Lillian Roth show. The, the big news about that show was that Lillian Roth, who had been um, an alcoholic for many years, was making a comeback. And everybody wanted to see if this famous performer could get through the show, which she did. But she was playing the mother by then. Anyway, um, um, yeah, she, I mean, she liked to talk about, at that point, she liked to talk about films, about how hard it was for women uh, to be directors. Um, and, uh, you know, she didn't, Streisand doesn't like to, be too touchy-feely with people or to get too up close. Um, but I remember um, um, I did get her to do an autograph for your mother one day in Westchester um, at a fundraiser for Bella in 1982. And then the owner of the house where the fundraiser was said, I would like an autograph too. And she said, no more autographs. So I think that was the end. Speaking of films, you've had a lot of film experience, not the least of which was rewriting Woody Allen. Can you talk about that? <laughs> I, I guess. So when I was working for Bella Abzug, he asked her to do a cameo in the movie Manhattan. Um, her role was to play herself and to come to a fundraiser in the MoMA Sculpture Garden and say something like, thank you all for coming. This is a great cause, uh, and now have a wonderful time. So she got the script, which was redacted. The only thing you could see in the script was her part. Woody Allen was famous, and maybe it still does this, for blacking out everybody else's lines so you couldn't see the whole story. Anyway, she said yes. We got to the Museum of Modern Art. She was wearing a black uh, formal dress and a black hat. And when she got there, Woody Allen came up to us and said, um, um, Bella, thank you for doing this. If you want to rewrite the script and do your own lines, it's perfectly fine. And Bella walked on and she threw the script at me and said, rewrite this. So the lines that she speaks were written by me. The only thing that Woody Allen wanted her to say as the last word was the word enjoy. I think that was the word. And then he would, I was going to say yell cut, but he didn't. He, he would whisper cut to the assistant director and the assistant director yelled cut. I once saw him film, he once filmed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and he's did it the same way. He doesn't shout action or cut himself. So that's my little contribution to movie history. A, a 30 second scene in Manhattan. I wish we could go even further into this part of your career, but there are so many and we don't have unlimited time. So how did you get your job at Channel 13? Um, someone who had worked in the Bella Abzug campaign had gotten a job there first. I remember she was a, a, public, a publicist for Polaroid cameras. And she always brought a Polaroid to the campaign to take instant pictures of Bella. Anyway, she offered me a job as the head of publicity. And then she left. And then our other boss left. And I was left to be the, uh, the director of 
publicity and marketing and communications for somehow at a very young age for the country's biggest public television station. And I had it. That's still one of my favorite jobs. I did it for only six years, but I really loved it. How closely were you involved with the Great Performances series? And what shows of those did you help do press for? Oh, I did press for um, all of Great Performances, uh, Theater in America, Dance in America. Um, we did three Cheever stories, dramatizations of Cheever. Um, we did uh, dramatizations of, uh, of short stories. And so I would go on set and get the actors to do things uh, for the newspapers. And it was a lot of fun. And um, well, I think my favorite Channel 13 productions, maybe this is a little off theater, but it involved theater people. We used to do these big band broadcasts, which meant we'd all go to, the, to Roseland and film a series of old time singers like Keely Smith and Johnny Hartman. And, um, oh, just, um, amazing number of old-time singers, many of whom appeared on Broadway as well. And we, I loved that. I loved that period of music. So th I think those were my favorites. And um, we also taped, you know, plays at Lincoln Center as well. So there was a lot of connection between theater and dance and, uh, um, and opera and, and uh, drama. And while you were there, what sort of executives, either of great performances or of the broader channel, did you work with? So I worked with John J. Islin, who was the president of Channel 13, and with a man named Jack Venza, who was the executive producer and creator of most of great performances. And some of your, um, some of your listeners uh, may know the name Jeff Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin is the uh, chief legal correspondent of CNN and the author of many wonderful books about the court system. His father, Jerry Tubin, was the, um, the head of news programming at Channel 13. But before that, he had created Live from the Met, uh, the Met Opera. And he had great stories about temperamental opera singers shrieking in their dressing rooms. And he was a riot. So I, I loved working with him. And then there was a man named Bob Kotlowitz, who was the chief producer of all the programs, including great performances. He was a very elegant, very brilliant man. And it was a great place to be because all of the people were older than I, and I learned a lot about production and what they expected and um, about working with producers, which, may I say, uh, was not easy. While you were there, I know you worked a lot or had a close relationship with the production of Alice in Wonderland that they were doing, which involved Kate Burton and Austin Pendleton. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we bought the rights to Alice in Wonderland. And um, I didn't understand quite why, but we all went to the theater to see the production. It was Eva Legallion, the legendary, legendary actress and impresaria who was doing a revival on Broadway. She was pretty old by then. and I think she sold her production to Channel 13, but in the end, um, it wasn't her production that we did. It was something different. I think Kate Burton was in the Broadway version, and then she did the TV version. But the most amazing thing about the TV version is that her father, Richard Burton, agreed to be in it. And um, 
James Coco and other great Broadway luminaries were in it. And we just did the whole thing on a soundstage. And I would bring reporters through during the breaks to talk to the actors. The only person we could not um, introduce to the reporters was Richard Burton. And that's because he was not in a state of, shall we say, complete sobriety. He somehow was very professional once they said action, but when they said cut, it was like he was a rubber man and began to collapse, so. I know that you had interactions, obviously, as you were saying, with a lot of celebrities while you were there. Two of them that are included are Jeremy Irons and Sid Charisse, and I know oh. our <laughs> listeners will be interested to hear about them and what they were like and how you met them. We did a big event for Brideshead the, the immortal public uh, based on the Evelyn Waugh novel. So we had um, Jeremy Irons and Anthony Andrews and uh, John Gielgud, not Olivier, but a lot of the great stars from the production came to the Channel 13 building, which is now, again, the Henry Hudson Hotel on 8th Avenue and 57th and 58th Streets. That was our main studio. We had a big gala. And um, everyone said... Uh, a lot of people said Jeremy Irons is not going to be um, a big star. The other actor, Anthony Andrews, will be the big star. Well, of course, we were all totally wrong. Also at that event was John Hausman, um, who most people know as the star of the movie and the television program, The Paper Chase. And he went on to ha enjoy an acting career very late in his life, really in his 70s and 80s. But before that, he was the main producer for the Mercury Theater and was Orson Welles' chief producer when Welles did his, his Broadway productions and before he went to Hollywood to do Citizen Kane. So that was really exciting. And he was very, um, very aristocratic even then. But Sid Charisse. Okay, so one of our, one of our programs was a, a dance program and Sid Charisse recreated her famous what was that famous number in the Gene Kelly movie where she plays a nightclub singer and uh, it's a dream sequence. It's a very famous movie dance. Now I've forgotten, it's got a name, but it's within um, one of Gene Kelly's movies. And she's wearing a famous fringe dress. And she has a page boy haircut and did a very famous sinewy dance. Anyway, we decided to do an event in Hollywood during the annual Hollywood press tour. And we went to a restaurant in Century City, which is the complex where Sid Charisse lived with her husband, Tony Martin, who was a very famous singer and was in the Marx Brothers movie, The Big Store. And um, both of them were not young. And I told my group, I wanted to sit next to Sid Charisse because frankly, I always had a crush on Sid Charisse. And she came in and we sat down and I said, can I get you, uh, I, I said to her and her husband, can we get you some wine? And they both said, no, we're alcoholics. So that was a bad start. Um, I did that to John Cheever too, by the way, at an event for his short stories that were done for public television. And then Sid Charisse, for the next hour and a half, sat next to me without saying a word. Once in a while, I would say to her, um, did you enjoy making uh, a movie with Jim Kelly? And she'd say, Yes. And I'd say, do you like the food? And she said, yes. So she was not a talker and it was a 
kind of a disappointment, but I did get great photographs, which I still have. A lot of dancers aren't very much talkers as well. Um, how did you get your start on the 42nd Street Redevelopment Project? So I, um, I left Channel 13 because Governor Mario Cuomo, for whom I'd worked in 1977 when he ran for mayor, asked me to come back to work for him after he was elected governor. In fact, he asked me while he was running for governor, but I loved Channel 13 so much, I didn't want to leave, but he convinced me. It was very hard to leave Channel 13, but I did. And I went back to work for him first at the, at the New York Convention Center. Um, and then after a few months, he transferred me to the State Urban Development Project, uh, State Urban Development Corporation. And our, one of our biggest projects was the 42nd Street Redevelopment Project. So I worked with two people who I still know, um, still talk to, um, Carl Weisbrod, uh, who was the head of it at the beginning and who is now was in the de Blasio administration recently, and Rebecca Robertson, who is now the, the director of, and I guess chief producer in a way, at the Park Avenue Armory, where she is really involved in amazing theatrical productions like the Lehman Trilogy and the Royal Shakespeare Company and things like that. So we would just, all we were trying to do is rescue these dilapidated theaters in a very rundown neighborhood. And I'll tell you how bad it was. We had our first press conference in the Liber the Victory or the whatever, the new Victory, it was the old Victory. And it was just a ruin. And Matilda Cuomo was coming. And one of the television cameramen put his camera down and said, Cuomo, it's so nice of you to do this. And she said, oh, I'm so happy to do it. I used to come to 42nd Street when I was a little girl. I want it to be safe and exciting again so that mothers can bring their children. And the cameraman said, oh, Mrs. Cuomo, that's such a great quote. Can I get my camera and film you saying that? And she said, of course. And he turned around and the camera had been stolen right off the sidewalk. That was what 42nd Street was like in 1985. Well, and the redevelopment project, it's arguably the biggest event in theater in the last 50 years or so. Take us inside the room. How did you make decisions? What was it like? Who talked? Well, one of the, the big decider was uh, my boss, Vincent Teasy, who was the head of the 42nd Street and head of the Urban Development Corporation. And he wanted to make sure it was a mix of public and private investment. So what, what he, what the, the, in the room where it happened, what they did is they made good, really kind of sweetheart deals with big real estate developers, but they would get, so they would get to wreck some buildings and build profitable office towers but in return for that, they had to pay for the complete renovation of theaters. So they had to do the Ziegfeld, they had to do the New Victory, they had to do, and you know, you know better than I, the names of the theaters. So they had to pay for all that. So it was a very, that was the big thing. And the other, the other thing that happened in the room where it happened is that people would come and say, you, this is a terrible thing you're doing. You're changing the, the kind of seedy, but really New York gritty character of 42nd Street. You know, it was a lot of porn shops and souvenir shops along the street. It was pretty, pretty disgusting. 
um, tourists really didn't walk on 42nd Street. And, but there were still people who said, we are Disneyfying the most famous street in New York, and it's terrible, terrible, terrible. And that was a hard thing to fight. That's, that's what we talked about in that planning stage, how to make it a positive and not a negative. Who were some of the people from more of the theater perspective who you got to work with on that? I guess Bernie Jacobs was the most um, influential of the theater group. Um, he was representing the theater community. And uh, um, so was, um, they have to help me, the head of the Schubert organization. Gerald Schoenfeld? Jerry Schoenfeld, yeah. Jerry Schoenfeld was really important in, in all of the planning of, uh, of this project. Because, you know, it was a delicate balance. We were going to be opening four new Broadway theaters, in, in essence. And this was not the great days of attendance at the theater. People had started to become kind of afraid to come into New York, leave their cars, go to restaurants. So although Jerry Schoenfeld knew that this was going to happen, he had to make sure that his theaters were protected uh, too and that he could they wouldn't all go to 42nd Street. They'd stay on 43rd and 44th and 45th. So his support was really vital. And what sort of part did you play in all of this? What did you do in the room? Um, I developed the messaging to the journalists, to the press, to the editorial boards, as they say now, putting a positive spin on the project. I mean, I know it looks great today, but again, there were lots of doubters who wanted to keep it exactly the way it was. Um, and we had to make the argument that making it attractive to families was not gonna take away the authenticity of this theater community and it was gonna help everybody. So that was my job, arranging television interviews, writing op-ed pieces, arranging for the governor to speak. I'll tell you a good story. We opened the um, Marriott during this project, sort of as a spinoff of the redevelopment project, and the governor was scheduled to come to open it. And it was gonna be a very big deal because as you know well, it has a theater in, in the basement. Didn't it replace a famous theater? It did, it re actually I believe four theaters were torn down. Yeah, so they had to build a big theater, which they did. Um, and um, the governor was going to come and open it and take credit for it. And at the last, and my office was at uh, 1515 Broadway at 44th Street, which is familiar to everybody who knows the theater district. So we were right next to the Marriott. And I, uh, 20 minutes to go, I get a call and it's the governor. And he says, did you know that Marriott is a non-union hotel? I don't know, I guess not. He said, there's a picket line of hotel industry workers outside of the Marriott. He said, tell them I'm not coming. And that he hung up and he didn't come because he would never cross a, picket, a union picket line. That is a good story. When you worked later at the Met, you got to attend the Met Gala several times. I know you had several unique experiences there, including serving as Hugh Grant's coat check boy. <laughs> <laughs> Who were some of the most difficult celebrities there and what sort of anecdotes can you tell us about the gala? Well, Hugh Grant and his then wife, help me with her name? I'm not sure. Yeah, she was very famous briefly. He, she had this gorgeous cape on, not a cape on, but a cape that she was wearing. And um, it must have cost thousands of dollars, but she didn't want to wear it for the photographs. So he threw it at me and said, here, check this. So I don't know, she, I guess she didn't care what happened to it. The most, the, I'll tell you one story. 
before it became the part the gala it was called the party of the year it was much smaller and um we had the red carpet inside the great hall of the metropolitan museum as opposed to on the steps and lauren bacall came one year and she came in and made a right hand turn to go to the party and all the photographers yelled at me i was in charge of all of that and they said um she lauren bacall went the wrong way and we didn't get a picture of her so i said i went up to her and i said excuse me miss bacall um you went right instead of left to check your coat and you missed the red carpet would you mind going back and doing the red carpet and she said you expect me lauren bacall to turn around retrace my steps go to a different check room and go on the red carpet and i said you're right miss bacall it's really a lot to ask i apologize go and have a good time at the party. And she said, oh, all right. And she did. Um, but in modern times, I think the most difficult was Diana Ross. Uh, although she was the, great, the greatest performer ever, at, in my view, in the costume, in the gala, of all of the ones we've had, like Lady Gaga and uh, many others. But she demanded that she take over the entire executive suite of the Metropolitan Museum. And she had all of the she had white carpet installed over all of the cheap red carpets in the president's office. It had to all be covered in white. And she brought in 40 wigs on heads so that she could choose her wig at the last moment. But most of the people were really have always been very nice, like Cher and uh, and all the Broadway people and um, Hugh Grant and all the people who go. They they're I mean, some of them misbehave. Uh, they smoke. And uh, when they're not supposed to smoke in an art museum, uh, maybe some of them drink a little too much. But uh, um, it, it was the greatest night of the year. I do remember that um, Donald Trump used to come with his several of his different wives and would always scowl. He hated to be there, clearly, uh, because he wasn't the center of attention. So he was a notable guest, to be sure. Tell us about insulting Harvey Weinstein on the steps and how traffic stopped for Sophia Loren. Oh, okay. Um, um, Harvey Weinstein was enormous, right? So, and he would come up the steps, stopping every step of the way to have his picture taken with whatever starlet he was with. And then he would go, almost go in the door, almost go in the door. And then he would see a photographer whom he'd missed or a camera crew. And he'd go downstairs again. He'd say, oh, and he'd start. And then people would come up the stairs and they couldn't be photographed. You see, we had photographers on both sides of the steps, north and south. And if he was standing in the middle of it, talking to a reporter, he was so enormous that he blocked out five photographers. So they would all yell at me. And I finally, I went up to him and I said, could you please go inside? Um, because you're blocking all the, and he said, no. So he wouldn't. But at least I tried. I consider that a fine, a fine moment. Um, Sophia Loren was not a gala. She came in 1991. No, well, 1996 maybe for the 35th anniversary of the movie El Cid. El Cid. Um, uh, Jean Shalit of the Today Show, who was also a Broadway critic and a film critic was going to do a, an interview with Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren at, in the um, 
Velas Blanco Patty, which was from the period of the movie El Cid. So that was a good backdrop for the Today Show. So they set it up. I went out and met Charlton Heston, who had the broadest shoulders of anyone I'd ever seen. And he came inside. A few people looked at him, not many. Um, and then we got the word, Sophia Loren is approaching. So I went down the steps, all the way down the steps to Fifth Avenue. I met her car. I introduced myself. I extended my arm to help her up the steps because she was wearing very long heels. She gently touched my arm. She did not take it. That would have been too much. And as she walked up the steps, always looking straight ahead, not to the side, not acknowledging everyone, cars came screeching to a halt outside. Taxi drivers came out of their taxis to look. One person actually fell down the stairs looking because she was so famous and so glamorous. And she was wearing a two-piece, like, peach-colored suit. So it was very summery, springtimey kind of a, anyway, unbelievable star power. And even though you probably didn't see celebrities every day when they came to the Met just for fun, tell us about some you did see. Like, I know Hugh Jackman is one. Just when Yeah, when there. we, Hugh Jackman, we got a call that Hugh Jackman wanted to see the Big Bamboo which some people may remember was a structure built by the Starnes brothers, artists who built a walkway on the, on the rooftop. Um, and um, he came and, uh, and, um, uh, and for some reason, the museum security wouldn't let his children go because they were too young, which was ridiculous. Yeah, he caused quite a stir. Um, maybe the biggest stir we ever had was, was some of them, Sean Connery came once. And he got a, a tour of the European, I'm sorry, the Impressionist galleries on a day that the galleries were closed. And for some reason, about 200 employees found a reason to walk across the Impressionist galleries that day. Paul McCartney came one day and uh, was looking at a, uh, a, the galleries with his wife. And um, I thought I had a great reason to talk to him. Um, I went up and I said, Sir Paul. He said, yes. I said, it's so great that you're here today in another gallery on the other side of the museum. We actually have a display of Ringo's gold drum, a famous drum set that was given to him as a gift. I said, would you like to see it? And he said, no. So that was, that was the Paul McCartney episode. I mean, we had uh, uh, President uh, George... H.W. Bush came. Uh, uh, we had um, Laura Bush came several times. Michelle Obama came to the Met. Hillary Clinton um, came to the opening of the New American Wing. And she also came to a Costume Institute gala once. The, probably the most exciting days of the year, and it's not really um, a show business day, was when President Clinton held the UN General Assembly reception at the Met. And it was his final UN General Assembly as President of the United States. And he stood in the Engelhardt Court, and everywhere you looked out, the most famous leaders in the world, um, um, leaders of Israel, Yasser Arafat, the leader of India, Russia, were just lined up for a receiving line for a few minutes with him. That was probably the most um, extraordinary event of all.
let's talk about another job that you are a consultant to NYC and company. So okay. it makes it, I think your viewers will think I can't hold a job. <laughs> Just to explain, this is like over a 45 year period we're talking, right? So first tell us how you got that job and then take us into the room or in now the Zoom room there too. Who's there? How do you make decisions? So NYC and company is the city's official travel and tourism marketing agency and advocate. Um, and of course, uh, until the pandemic, it was flying high with 67 million projected national and international visitors to New York City expected in the year 2020. That's clearly not going to happen. And of course, it's a different world now. I got involved because uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art had a board of the NYC and company as the biggest cultural institution. And my boss there, the president of the Met, Emily Rafferty, became the, the person on the board and then she became the chairman of NYC and company. So I worked as her deputy in that role on the board and they were nice enough to ask me to stay on after she um, retired from the chairmanship. So I get to work with the Broadway community and with hotel community and airlines all in an effort to, to, um, to build tourism. So before the COVID crisis, the rooms where it happened were about building new hotels, worrying whether there would be too many hotel rooms and rates would go down, building the new LaGuardia Airport and the new Kennedy Airport so we can have more and more visitors, fighting the un, unbridled growth of Airbnb, which the hotels don't like, um, helping Broadway, celebrating Broadway, all good things. Now, of course, the Zoom where it happens is about um, getting us through this crisis, getting the workers, the ushers in the theaters, the, uh, the ticket takers, the actors, uh, uh, the orchestras getting through this period without suffering, getting them, um, you know, um, federal aid, getting them unemployment. Um, right now, the chairman of NYC and Company is Charlie Flateman, who is vice president of the Schubert organization, so that we have a very close connection to the theater community as it plans to keep that brand alive in this period when we can't gather. So it's a very different room now. It's about survival. It's about what hotels will be able to continue functioning. It's about whether airlines can have face mask requirements so people can come to town. Maybe it'll be about doing some outdoor venues for theater to get the community back in some sort of working order. Although I'm kind of surprised that that has not happened yet in terms of outdoor. And throughout all this interview, I've been sort of ignoring a big side of your career, which is that you're one of the foremost Lincoln experts in the country. And there is a theatrical side to that too, which we'll talk about, which is that you've written, narrated, directed, produced, and acted in many, many plays about Lincoln. So tell us, how do you formulate an idea for a Lincoln play? Um, it's more like a reading, I guess, than a play. Um, my, my chief um, um, requirement for the formulation of these readings is that I get to be in it as well as writing it. So I always write it as a combination of readings and images. 
and I get to play the narrator, and I also introduce images with that I know a lot about, about Lincoln and the Civil War, that correspond with Lincoln's great speeches or his letters to his wife. So, I mean, I have to be honest, I really wanted to perform with these people. I wouldn't say I acted, I sort of narrated, and I, I certainly don't act. If you see the, any of these on C-SPAN, and some of them are still there, um, like the performance I did of Lincoln seen and heard, um, at the White House in um, 2009, I think, or eight, with Sam Waterston. He's acting, I'm just reading, and there's a difference. And I really learned from rehearsing and working with these people the difference between what I'm able to do and what they can do. And it's just, it's sort of magical to watch the process between readings and rehearsals and performances. It's so interesting to watch how they build on different readings and build it into something, you know, that's a real characterization, which I of course can't do, but it's, I just love watching it. Another thing I think that our listeners will be interested in is the Lincoln movie, which you had a part in. So tell us what you did on that movie and tell us about Steven Spielberg and Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay, so um, uh, Tony Kushner, the, um, the author of obviously many things, but he was the author of the screenplay for Lincoln, the, Daniel, the Steven Spielberg movie starring Daniel Day-Lewis, asked me to be kind of the historical consultant, meaning the fact checker for the movie. So I got an early copy of the script, which I still have, um, and we met a few times at the Metropolitan Museum and argued about little things and big things. My deal, as they say in the business, was that if I did this, my, my pay was a free trip to Richmond, Virginia, where they were filming the exteriors, and um, a weekend at the wonderful uh, Jefferson Hotel in Richmond, and to go on set and meet the cast. So um, one day I get a call from Tony Kushner saying, I'm sorry, you can't come down. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis wants a closed set and doesn't want anyone there. So that was the end of my deal. But I did go to, I did, um, uh, oh, and one day they called me from set to do it. But I never got to go down. But I was cheerful about it. And then I got to do a lot of events afterwards. I went to the uh, congressional screening in the Capitol with, and I finally met Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, and Spielberg, and they were very nice. And uh, Daniel Day-Lewis said, Mr. Hoser, you've been with me every step of the way. And I said, not that I was aware of, but that's nice. And, um, and I did a series of events in New York uh, with, with uh, Tony Kushner. We did conversations at the Museum of the Moving Image, uh, the New York Historical Society, uh, the Civil War Roundtable of New York, the Lincoln Forum. So we got to do four or five rounds of this uh, discussions about how he wrote Lincoln. And again, you know, it's so interesting to hear someone so gifted talking about their creative process. So I really had a, had a very good time doing those. Tell us about winning the Humanities Medal from George Bush in 2008. And tell us what it was like to sort of be in the same room with the recently deceased Olivia de Havilland and the Sherman brothers. Yeah, I know she was a child of 92 at the time. Um, 
uh, yes, so I got the National Humanities Medal, and she and the Sherman Brothers and, I, and a few other people I knew got the National Arts Medal. Um, I remember she kept waving her passport around outside because she was afraid she wouldn't be admitted, but they were very nice. You had to have proof of your, to get into the White House. So we were all taken to the East Room to hear a briefing on what the awards would be like. And a Marine dressed in a very fancy uniform said, and now let's begin the briefing. This is what's going to happen. The president will be standing where I'm standing at this microphone. A name, the voice of God will call out your name. You are to walk up these steps, shake hands with the president, then turn around and he will place the medal around your neck. Then you turn back to face him and shake his hand. Then you go down those steps. Do not stop and engage in conversation. Do not attempt to say anything into the microphone. That way we can get through these 15 people in a reasonable amount of time. And we all say, does everyone understand? We all said, yes, thank you. You can go back to the reception. Suddenly a voice comes out of the crowd and says, I would like to rehearse. Who is it? Olivia de Havilland. She's used to doing a rehearsal, so she insists on a run-through. 92 years old, she gets out of her chair, walks. They say, she says, please say my name. They say Olivia de Havilland. She walks up the step, bowing. She shakes hands with the Marine Colonel. She looks back at the audience, bows again, and goes down. And she says, now I've got it. She wanted to rehearse. She was a professional. The Sherman brothers, I had, I think I'd been to one of their homes in Hollywood once. Did they do Small World? I'm not sure. I think they did. It's a Small World after, they did Mary Poppins, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I was at their home once. They had, he, one of them, I don't know which one, he had his Oscars on a pedestal as you walk in the house, and he had a photo, a, a camera on a tripod, so everyone who came into the house could be photographed with the Oscars and get a Polaroid picture. So, um, but I didn't know when I got to the event that the Sherman brothers had not spoken to each other for something like 30 years. They hated each other. So they had to be kept separate. They were growling at each other at the, at the, at the event. And when they were brought up together, they wouldn't go up together. One, they went up one at a time. It was amazing. All right. So now for our last question, which is sort of going to be a little lightning round. On your website, you list a lot of actors and celebrities who you've worked with, mostly on Lincoln plays, but also on other things. So I'm going to name a lot of these celebrities. And for each one, tell me first what you worked with them on, and second, a little older story about them. So let's start with Stephen Lang. Stephen Lang, um, we've done... Lincoln programs together and we become really good friends. I saw him for the first time in A Few Good Men on Broadway and he was pretty scary. Um, he's an amazing person and his father was one of the great philanthropists of the 20th century, Eugene Lang, who gave money to give free college educations to children in need in New York City. Um, and he's um, amazingly professional and people don't know this, but he's a terrific Shakespearean actor. Well, he did play Hamlet in Shakespeare in the Park, so. Sam Waterston. He also played Hamlet, and then he played Polonius um, in Shakespeare in the Park. Uh, Sam Waterston I met when he was doing Gore Vidal's Lincoln, a miniseries, uh, also in Richmond, in 1984. Mary Tyler Moore was Mary Lincoln. And I went on set to write a story for the New York Times 
and met both of them, watched them film, went out to dinner with Sam Waterston, and wrote an article in which I criticized the idea of the show. But he was very happy with me, and we've been friends for, you know, um, 30 years and have done lots of Lincoln things together. And um, uh, Mary Tyler Moore was doing a commercial at the UDC, 1515 Broadway, and sent for me. And I came down and said, hello, Ms. Moore. And she said, don't hello me. They should never have allowed you on the set. So that was the difference between Sam and Mary Tyler Moore. John Douglas Thompson. We did uh, Lincoln's favorite Shakespeare in the Berkshires. And what I remember about Mr. Thompson is he said, there's something wrong with this word in the script. Um, I'm going to look up Shakespeare, the Shakespeare canon on my iPhone. He was so um, um, knowledgeable about the Shakespearean canon that he picked out a word that I messed up when I typed it or a spell check, got spell check wrong. Very impressive. Another person who did that who may not be on your list was the late Fritz Weaver. Um, he, I had a word called bearded, a, a bearded something. And he said, it's not bearded, it's barbed, B-A-R-B apostrophe D. And he, he didn't have an iPhone. So he said, someone else look it up. I think it was John Douglas Thompson looked it up too. Fritz Weaver was amazing because he never showed his hand in rehearsals. Even in a dress rehearsal of the Shakespeare stuff for Lincoln Shakespeare, he was very laid back. And then when the performance came, and he was basically had the most soliloquies in the second part of the show, he really poured it on and dominated the whole thing. He was very, my Shakespeare actors were always very competitive with each other. And Fritz Weaver, our listeners may be interested to know, was the star of All American and Baker Street on Broadway. So Kathleen Chalfont. Oh, she's also doesn't rehearse with the full throttle of her performance. She did Mary Lincoln uh, for me once, as did others. And um, she, when she was rehearsing it, when we did the final rehearsal at the Metropolitan Museum, I said to myself, um, this is not going to work. She's not doing the intensity. But she was saving it for the evening. This is all one day, <coughs> excuse me, one rehearsal. And she was magnificent. She got all the nuances. She's a wonderful woman, progressive, unbelievably progressive in politics, real fighter for human justice and civil rights and civil liberties. I'm a big admirer of hers. Blair Brown. Um, Blair Brown did Mrs. Lincoln too. What I remember most about Blair Brown is when I worked for Channel 13, we took the Again, we went to Los Angeles every June for the annual press tour. We were going to film The Skin of Our Teeth uh, with Blair Brown, and it was playing in San Diego. So we chartered a plane and got all of the reporters into a plane to fly to San Diego to see the performance. The only problem was there was a storm in Los Angeles, so we had to wait about an hour and a half to take off. And when we took off, we got to the theater, and the audience was in an uproar, like pounding and stamping their feet because we had held them up for an hour and a half. But Blair Brown was not very happy. Annette Benning. Annette Benning wasn't, I mean, um, she was doing Mrs. Lincoln too. She didn't want to know very much about Lincoln, so I was disappointed. And a woman, I said, who's sister-in-law? And she looked at me and said, who? And I said, Shirley MacLaine, who I knew through Bella Abzug. And she said, oh, her. 
So that was my experience with the net bending. That was at, at the Shakespeare at Delacorte, right? Isn't that what you call it in the park? Chris Knopf. Chris Knopf, I never knew watching. I'm a big fan of his on uh, Law and Order and Sex and the City and all the other things he did, but I never knew he was a student uh, and a performer of Shakespeare. He really was so excited about doing Lincoln's Shakespeare in the Berkshires, and he was great, very friendly, and knew a lot about Lincoln, too. So I, I was fun. Norm Lewis. Norm Lewis is, uh, did Frederick Douglass in another right thing I wrote called the Real Lincoln-Douglas Debate. It was an imaginary meeting between a series of meetings, actually not so imaginary, reconstructed meetings between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. And I, I, I don't know, I, I was, he's a lovely, lovely man, but I think he was a little bit inhibited about doing Frederick Douglass because he never did it with a kind of robustness that I've seen him do in um, uh, Porgy and Bess and other things I've seen him in and Phantom of the Opera. So I don't mean to be critical, but uh, I think he was a little intimidated by Frederick Douglass. Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter and Liam Neeson uh, did um, a Lincoln Family Album, a thing I wrote about Abraham and Mary Lincoln, and we did it in Washington. And they really regarded their performance as a rehearsal because both of them were expected to play the Lincolns in the Spielberg movie. Liam Neeson was always supposed to play Abraham Lincoln, and Holly Hunter really wanted to play Mary. She's a Southerner, although she's from Georgia, not Kentucky, like Mary. So they, she, she and Liam both were, gave amazing, amazing performances as Abraham and Mary, but as we know, neither of them got the parts that they hoped for in the movie. Alec Baldwin. Um, Alec Baldwin is uh, as gruff as people say. Um, he was in backstage with Annette Benning when we did our little Lincoln Shakespeare thing at the Delacorte. And um, I will say that he's a really good Shakespearean actor too, as is Annette Benning. All these people have chops in Shakespeare that is kind of not to be believed. Anna Devere Smith. She did, she decided to do Lincoln. She did a reading of Lincoln and Everyone who has seen her perform knows that she channels herself into any character, any gender, any race, any nationality that she is inspired to do. And it was just a revelation seeing her transform. And she's an exciting, extraordinary person. Richard Dreyfuss. I feel like a kindred spirit to him because we both uh, were from Queens. Uh, we're almost the same age. And... Um, um, I met him when I was doing a lecture in Los Angeles um, at the Skirball Museum. And I looked out of the corner of my eye and there was a man leaning in the doorway who looked like Richard Dreyfus. And after the lecture, I realized it was Richard Dreyfus. So we became friends and we've done Lincoln readings together and um, Ulysses S. Grant. I'm always interested in the fact that he loves General Grant and really would have loved to portray him when he was still the right age for it. Uh, but his, he writes, he's a great writer, and he's written plays and books about the Civil War, and um, he may have a new one coming out soon. Andre de Shields. Andre de Shields was a, a, an amazing uh, performer also in an event we did at Cooper Union for the anniversary of the Cooper Union Address. We got 
several distinguished people to read parts of the speech. It's an hour and a half speech. So I did one event with Sam Waterson where he did the whole speech, but this time it was Governor Cuomo, Mario Cuomo, Andre DeShields, Kathleen Chalfond, Stephen Lang, and Richard Dreyfus. And uh, Andre was amazing. He also did a reading at the New York Times when we debuted a book called The New York Times Civil War. He's a lovely, lovely man and uh, so exciting that he's won a Tony and a Grammy for 80s Town now. He's sort of gotten a second wind on his great career. Diane Wiest. Diane Wiest was the best, one, just the, the, one of the best Mary Lincolns I've ever heard. She just inhabited Mary Lincoln. And she taught me something really valuable that I never knew before. And that's how to bow with an ensemble. I never knew that the person in the middle squeezes both hands of the people next to her. And then with the, the squeeze is the signal that everybody bows. I never knew how it was that lines all bowed together. That she taught that. I'll, that's now sometimes when I do group things, I teach other people that. And they say, How do you know that? And I say, From Diane Weist, of course. And finally, Harvey Firestein. Harvey Firestein. He's an amazing new friend. Because I work for Bella Abzug, he heard I was, his, I was Bella's press secretary. So when he did his amazing one person show, Bella Bella, he came to me, asked me if I would read a series of drafts of the script. Uh, we got to go and see his rehearsals, uh, opening night, um, several performances. I did some talk, two talkbacks. Um, he's just extraordinary. Um, he really, he never met Bella. Um, and he somehow channeled her force, her Yiddishkeit, as they say, her Jewish sensibilities, her, her soul, <coughs> her love of family, and her great sadness after she lost uh, her big election for the Senate. And it was just an, an amazing play. It just went beyond the boundaries of time and gender. And I, I hope it was a great wake-up call because I was afraid that too many people had forgotten about Bella. She, she died in 1998, but without her sacrificing herself for the women's movement, I don't think as many women would be serving in Congress or in state houses today. And um, I think he, he, brought her, he brought her back into the public consciousness, for which I'm very grateful. And as you know, we're now meeting a few days, or taping a few days after Bella's 100th birthday. So it makes me ever more grateful to Harvey. Thank you, Harold Holzer, for being here and sharing your stories with us. I know that I learned a lot. And listeners, thank you for joining us. I know you got as much out of this as I did. Tune in on Friday for an interview with Broadway historian Ken Bloom. Ken is the author of many books about Broadway, including his widely acclaimed show and tell, a book of Broadway anecdotes, and many encyclopedias, such as American Song Parts 1 and 2 and the Encyclopedia of Broadway. Ken is a Grammy Award winner and a radio host, so make sure to tune in. Goodbye and thank you for listening.